Welcome to the You Lead Podcast, brought to you by the Council for School Leadership of the Alberta Teachers Association. Hello and welcome to the You Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. In this episode, we feature an interview that highlights the current state of school leadership in Alberta. Dr. Bonnie Stelmack and Dr. Phil McRae speak to us about the recently published report entitled Alberta School Leadership Within the Teaching Profession 2019. This research outlines some areas of success and difficulty for school leaders in Alberta, and it also identifies some questions regarding the work of school leaders that need to continue to be investigated. Here's our conversation with Dr. Bonnie Stelmack and Dr. Phil McRae. Dr. Phil McGray and Dr. Bonnie Stelmack, thanks so much for joining us on the ULEAD podcast today. Uh, let's get right into it, uh, because what I really want to talk to you about is this recent study you were both involved with, which is called the Alberta School Leadership Within the Teaching Profession 2019. Um, essentially, my gist in it, uh, or what I, what I took away from it, is you were kind of looking to, to better understand and document the work of school leaders in Alberta, which is, is really the mandate to support those school leaders, the Council for School Leadership. Um, so I, I was just wondering, maybe starting that, what, what was your motivation for this study? Kind of what were you seeing that made you believe that getting into the work of school leaders in Alberta was an important topic to investigate? Well, first of all, Corey, thanks for the invitation and uh, the interest in the study. Um, This is actually part of an ongoing set of research that we've done in the profession around school leadership and looking at the forces influencing uh, their work, the kind of supports that are needed, and really um, helping uh, school leaders navigate the opportunities and challenges that they face, because there are many, and we're seeing in schools and school communities a pretty dramatic increase in terms of the complexity of of, uh, students, their needs, the learning uh, environment itself, and uh, how we can better understand what's going on in their world. Dr. Stelmack, anything to add there? Hi, Corey. Uh, Again, thanks. Uh, I'd like to echo Phil's thanks for um, talking to us about this. It's a really really important study. I don't think there's anything to add. I mean, it was ultimately intended to be a provincial scan of school leaders in the profession with the end aim of identifying, you know, professional and research needs that the association would then be able to respond to. Actually, that uh, that leads me into the next question, and, and you talked about the scan. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the methods that you used. Um, How did you go about interacting with different school leaders and getting information from them and and roughly how many people were involved in this study? Corey, the since the overarching purpose of the study was to gain insights from school leaders in Alberta about the trends and issues that were impacting their role and the nature of the impact, we used two different methods. So there was a web-based survey And that was administered to 2,200 school leaders uh, across the province. And this was a random sample that was generated from the database from the Council for School Leaders. And on that survey, respondents were also invited to volunteer to participate in a face-to-face or virtual focus group. The focus groups came after the survey. So we had a chance to do a little bit of a preliminary analysis of the survey data 
And there were three face-to-face focus groups held in Edmonton, Calgary, and one in Banff. The latter location was selected because it was convenient during the ULEAP conference. One virtual focus group was held. And in total, there were 954 school leaders that responded to the survey. And 14 school leaders participated in the focus groups. And just to keep in mind, this kind of sample size is typical for qualitative research. So, um, you know, it gives us a chance to really drill down rather than get breadth. It's more depth that we were looking at. So in the end, we had um, about 100 survey items to look at, 2,100 verbal comments from the survey, and about 100 pages of transcript from the focus groups. That seems like a like a really decent sample size. I'm not going to lie. Thinking about the how big Alberta is and and how many school leaders there might be. Now, I really enjoy actually how you uh, how you categorize the different findings. How it was into highlights, lowlights, and the shadows. And um, it's really difficult to to make that that whole study and, and maybe synthesize it down into uh, uh, tiny snippets. But I'm interested to know. If there was anything that came out of this that was that was really surprising, what was the the most surprising for you? Well, one of the things I'll maybe um, just kick off because I also want to acknowledge Dr. Stelmack um, and her work to help frame the findings that way, um, and also to bring a really deep understanding of school leadership and and the kind of historical forces that are impacting school leaders. Um, because uh, Bonnie did a fantastic job of helping to take, you know, that much data, right, a thousand people and, you know, thousands of comments and really pull it together into these coherent, uh, consistent themes. Um, You know, I think I'll I'll just, maybe if I can, I'll speak um, to, for each one of them, something that, uh, I don't know if it necessarily surprised me, but in some cases it reinforced what we know and in others, it uh, it flagged where we need to put some resources. Um, you know, in the highlights, what was really clear for me is the commitment of school leaders in this province to students and to their communities. You know, these are people who are absolutely committed to being instructional leaders and to really being, um, you know, the, the best um, educational leaders they can be in their communities in the face of really challenging circumstances. Um, and uh, and limitations in many cases. So I think in terms of the highlights, it just showed me the pride that uh, school leaders take in their work and also the um, ability to navigate a lot of the complexities they do on a daily basis. Um, in terms of the lowlights, what caught my attention is, you know, this challenge of being the ideal worker, trying to be the, you know, the, the omnicompetent best leader you could be, you know, that, that challenge isn't something that we should take lightly. And, you know, I, I'm really concerned about the sustainability of leadership um, in the province, also the ability to support school leaders in the face of, of you know, really complex situations, right? And and I know that Dr. Stemak will talk about moral distress or the, you know, kind of compassion fatigue things that were, were in the low lights. But, you know, that's something that I think is some, uh, you know, the, the kind of overworked and emotionally exhausted um, that we really have to pay attention to to sustain leadership 
positions. And then in terms of the paradoxes, um, I, I think what surprised me were some of the ways they categorized, you know, like technology, for example, um, and both its promise and peril. Vaping was identified as a technology that they really had some concerns over. And I, and I hadn't initially thought that vaping would be one of those things, but e-cigarettes, right, uh, was something that came up over and over as a, as a, a a challenge of technology that was in their environments. Um, so, you know, really much, much insight in all those areas, but uh, those are just off the top of my head, three things that struck uh, struck me when we read through the uh, findings. Dr. Stelmack, maybe that's a, that's a good uh, format for you as well. Maybe uh, one of the highlights, the uh, lowlights and shadows that you found either surprising or really valuable. Sure, Corey. And, Feel free to call me Bonnie, by the way. <laughs> so I'm, I was kind of laughing to myself as Phil was speaking because he identified the same ones that I thought I would speak to as well. And I, I still will because I'm going to just maybe add something a little bit different. The, the highlight about the commitment, I, I shouldn't be surprised, right? I have faith in our teachers in Alberta, but what did surprise me was how little reward seems to be required to keep them going. I left one focus group in particular wondering how and why they do it. And I did ask kind of at the end of it, what keeps you going? And the answer is always purpose-driven. They are doing it for the students. The ability to make a difference to children and youth in some way is their ultimate goal. And so to me, that's a wonderful thing. And it's unfortunate that sometimes public trust or the celebration of teachers just isn't there in a way that it should be. And that's one of the good things I think that this study can do is to illustrate to the public just how committed the profession is in this province. So that, that to me was a highlight. Um, and I guess the low light is, well, maybe, maybe let me just add one more thing there. I was looking at some data from a, an American survey of teachers that Phi Delta Kappa does, and that's a large American um, organization. And they, for years they have been serving their, their teachers to find out, you know, working conditions, same kind of thing, right? And this year, what struck me was um, how many teachers, it was about half that were seriously considering leaving the profession. That isn't to say that there aren't school leaders or teachers in Alberta who don't give that a thought at some point in their career. But to have almost half seriously considering it is, uh, I think it makes a big statement. But more than that, it's, the reason, and the top reason is at inadequate pay and benefits. There are some areas in the United States where only 28% of teachers feel that they're fairly paid. So workload and working conditions falls down in terms of the factors that um, contribute to that desire to leave. So what tells me about the teaching profession in Alberta is that commitment to students trumps everything. Our teachers have not received a salary increase for seven years, is it? 
Would that be yeah. right? Yeah, we're, we're seven years of zero. Yeah, seven years of zero. That comment rarely came up. I can count on one hand the number of comments on the survey that were related to that, and nobody in a focus group brought that up. So I, I think that substantiates what Phil um, identified as a highlight. I, that's phenomenal to me. The question of money is not what they're concerned about. Um, and this perhaps is a good segue to another finding that surprised me, and it's on the it's on the low light. And uh, Phil already did kind of speak to this about um, the commitment that school leaders have. There there is a tacit definition of the ideal school leader as someone who accepts overwork and underliving their professional aspiration. And their professional aspiration is to be an instructional leader. When you look at the nine competencies on our newly mandated leadership quality standard, only one of them has to do with management. All of the others focus very strongly on leadership. However, management is where school leaders spend their time. And that is their lament, right? There's the time to be an instructional leader is minuscule. Um, so while there's frustration, there's also a reticence about speaking up. Um, people are concerned that if they state their sense of being overwhelmed, that they might be perceived as incompetent or not fit to do the job. And so they, they stay silent. And that's, that's why I referenced Stevie Smith's poem, Not Waving But Drowning, because on the surface, it looks like they're doing all right. And I am sure there are many, if not most, who are doing all right. But there is, they are battling with um, an extension to their role that goes way beyond what I think should be professionally expected. Um, and they are, and it really is suffocating their desire to be making that difference to children. So those are and the... If I, if I can just add add to what Bonnie is saying there um, before you go to the third piece. One of the things that we have to recognize is that schools have taken on roles uh, over the over the last several decades that haven't traditionally been the role of, uh, you know, school leader, the, the kind of um, moral compass, uh, having conversations and, you know, um, doing things that schools were never necessarily built to, uh, to accommodate, you know, feeding students and taking care of really complex dynamics. And I think, you know, school leaders have taken that on over time. And it is showing in terms of the research and the work. Um, you know, just to Bonnie's point, we heard in the focus groups and we saw it in the in the data, you know, just one small success every day was enough to energize them to move forward. You know, one small kernel or, you know, little uh, act that made them really feel good about the work they're doing. Um, and, you know, that just speaks volumes to their resilience, actually. And, uh, and, and I think to, to Bonnie's point, um, it's something that uh, is heartening, but also cautionary. We need to be very aware that, you know, we, these aren't necessarily sustainable um, things ongoing or, or invitational to people wanting to go into school leadership. Thanks, Bonnie, maybe you want to uh, highlight one of your shadows. Um, one of the things that you saw were, that, that was kind of one of those, yeah, how, how would you even de de define 
your the shadows. Maybe it's you know things that are overlooked, uh, maybe unsaid, not a positive, not a negative, just an is. The shadows were actually a conceptualization of findings that were ambiguous. So not entirely clear from these data what we could conclude. One example is with respect to gender in the leadership role. So we know for decades now in educational research Gender bias in leadership roles has been identified and lots of scholarly attention has been given to that topic. There was ambiguity in these data because while there were comments about it being easier for men to pursue and achieve school leadership in a formal capacity, when we looked at the comments that we asked people to make with respect to that question. Most of the comments said, gender is not an issue. I don't know why we would ask about this. It's not about that. So of course we cannot know whether it was men or women making those comments, right? Um, We do know that females responded to the survey more than males, but that's, that just created a bit of a, of an unknown or, it would give us, it would make us pause before deriving at any kind of conclusion. I'm interested to know because by the end, I imagine of any of these studies, you, you look at what, what you're going to use, what you're going to go forward with. And, and when you got to the end of this study, what do you think the most important piece of information or, or a conclusion that you came that you said, Hey, ah, we got to use this and investigate it more. We've got to, we've got to take this little bit of information. I think that that's what you're getting to in the shadows and we need to use that to, to investigate further. So, you know, one of the things that we did in this study is we actually asked people to identify areas of research that they felt um, the association should pursue and uh, and help kind of prioritize um, where we go next. So really the population of Alberta school leaders helped us do that, you know, point the direction. Um, you know, just following off what uh, Bonnie said about women in leadership, there is now a research study related to women in leadership to better understand some of those paradoxes um, that she identified and really uh, look into how we can encourage and support more women to move in into formal leadership positions. That's something certainly that was part of this. But the the area that um, is very clear for us practically to move forward with is with the increasing um, diversity and complexity of student needs in, in schools and actually the concerns around mental health for students and teachers in this environment, those areas were the, the kind of top research areas to move forward with. You know, how do we manage um, uh, not just complex classrooms, but mental health and wellness or mental wellness and well-being of both uh, teachers, uh, students and um, school leaders? So we're looking now at engaging in a research study with the Alberta School Employee Benefit Plan. And, um, and researchers around compassion fatigue, around um, how to deal with trauma, um, mental health, 
um, and uh, and the increasing uh, complexity of students and student needs in schools. Bonnie, what's your uh, what do you see as that you know most important piece of information that you think you're going to use going forward here? From a research point of view, perhaps the conceptual framing of this was reliant upon moral distress, as you had mentioned at the outset here. And identifying that moral distress is a phenomenon in the teaching profession is a critical piece of information. That concept emerged from the health profession. So Andrew Jameton, pardon me, in the 80s was studying nursing and coined this term to depict the feeling of constraint that nurses had with respect to physicians' directives. So the context for them was the overtreatment of the dying. And that's not the school context, but, you know, it was nurses knowing that what physicians were directing to keep patients alive was the wrong thing to do for everybody, the family, the patient, et cetera. Now, in education, we're not talking about life or death. I suppose the current COVID-19 pandemic (laughs) makes that, uh, it makes the situation a little bit different today. However, that is an extraordinary moment in our um, history. But for the most part, knowing that school leaders experience moral distress and that feeling of they know the right thing to do, but they can't do it because of factors outside of their control, that is telling us that there is something more to the the research that we have on working conditions, for example. There's a lot of research now on principals especially, but vice principals as well, particularly coming from Ontario, Katina Pollock's work on work intensification. And while it's true that school leaders do work hard, that's not what they're concerned about. It is when they cannot act, when their agency is constrained. Now, some of this obviously intersects with structural factors like funding. So the complexity of the classroom that Phil was talking about is problematic because they're ill-equipped to deal with it. Or they are dealing with it in a way that they know from a professional point of view is not the ideal way. So... The complexity of the classrooms is has always been the case. The current situation is that it's the emotional, behavioral complexity that is observed in children today that is difficult to deal with. So that's just an additional kind of complexity um, from the cognitive complexities, linguistic, cultural, socioeconomic that just adds to the pile, right? So I think that um, this is introducing a new concept to the educational research. And that is something that can advance the conversation with respect to work intensification. It's very valuable to understand work intensification in the context of the teaching profession. But one of the dangerous implications of that is it could be interpreted as an individual problem that You need to learn some strategies to figure out how to make it all work. Time management, you know, books like Work Smarter, Not Harder, that becomes part of the discourse and it ultimately focuses on things like burnout or stress. 
But teaching is a moral enterprise and moral distress signals a threat to the moral imperative. And that's what I think is really key about this study. And, you know, Corey, um, additional to that, I think, with the pandemic uh, happening right now, is what we see in terms of school leaders um, identifying their vulnerable students and being really deeply concerned about their food security, um, you know, uh, incidents that now, you know, when school is a safe haven for them, what happens when they're away for weeks at a time? And it really is highlighting this, um, you know, moral distress that, that you know, the, the work that they take on, not because they're paid to do it, not because this is something in a job description, but this is something in the fabric of their being to really be caring for their students and their school communities. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's truly uh, heroic um, when you see it up close and, you know, fills me with pride to be in a profession with colleagues who take this on, but also, as Bonnie said, really deeply worried about the sustainability of that. You know, this idea they're, they're not waving, they're drowning. And, and I think, Corey, I, th I think that's important because what, what the PDK survey data told me is that Alberta has a unique context with respect to the teaching profession. When you read data that teachers just want more money or they won't do something unless they get paid, and I know that does happen in certain American jurisdictions, even things like professional development, they won't do it unless they're paid, if it's after school, for example. We don't experience that. And so I think that is something we want to protect, right? And it is a sustainability question. It, it is a source of pride, but it also sets us apart so that when you know, we look at North American or Western educational systems, we can be cognizant of the fact that there's a uniqueness in this province. And it's very telling from the qualitative data, especially. Um, now, I, I want to move into a different area. And, uh, and I'm sure that many of the people are, that are going to be listening to this are practicing school leaders. And I was wondering if you had any suggestions for those leaders of schools that you might ask them or you might uh, recommend them to consider about implications for practice. So what? So what do we do? Is there something that came out of this study that school leaders could tangibly do or you think should actually influence their their practice so that we can either improve schools or reduce some of that that moral distress? I think there's power in having a document like this that shows so you know provides such a strong signal that I'm not alone. I'm not just feeling this alone. This is something that um, you know, together we need to tackle you know, the, the idea even of the ideal worker, unpacking what that means and saying, you know, maybe it's okay not to, uh, you know, be on email all the time. Maybe we do have to build boundaries in a, in a digitally uh, boundless world, right? Um, and, you know, I've taken this document out now to several meetings of large groups of principals and small groups of principals and literally walked through kind of the findings and let them talk about them together and saying, you know, how is it that within our community of school leadership, whether it's in an urban or a rural setting, because I've done both, how can we 
start to look at either advocacy through the ATA and profession um, to support some changes in these areas, but also to recognize that this isn't necessarily sustainable in these ways, right? Or, or some of these things, um, you know, even, even um, looking at bureaucratic tasks that take them away from instructional leadership and recognizing their love to be in classrooms and with students and teachers um, is something that they need to really prioritize. Um, and how do we move some of those bureaucratic tasks you know, out of out of that space, you know, what's really important. And I think taking this study um, and knowing that it is a strong voice of school leadership, in particular, particularly in Alberta, um, I've I've also had conversations with superintendents about this, and I know that um, uh, many of them have reached out to me about these findings as well. I think together we need to step back and say, if this is the highlight the lowlights and the paradoxical shadows that are resident in our schools and our school communities. How do we address some of these, the opportunities moving forward, but also the, the really entrenched challenges that are going to make it hard to recruit people into school leadership and those that are currently in school leadership to, to let them flourish. And I think we, we need to, to um, have more dialogue around these findings um, over the next year, year and a half, um, and continue to uh, study some of the key areas like moral distress, compassion fatigue, um, and supporting kind of the the uh, increasing complexity, as Bonnie said, behavioral, but also mental health challenges. Those kept coming up over and over and over and really producing resources that are practical for school leaders to employ uh, on a Monday morning. Bonnie, uh, what are you thinking? Uh, things that you think school leaders might might be able to act on or recommendations. It doesn't have to be concrete, but things for them to think about um, in terms of practical application of this. Some of my comments will actually be coming from a meta level, I think. You know, Phil and I were in a different conversation last week and um, the the phrase culture Trump's strategy came up in our discussion. And one of the reasons why I included the concept of the ideal worker, which comes from Cantor um, in the 70s, was to emphasize a cultural element of the profession. It, it is um, a paradoxical cultural element, though, because on one hand, the incredible commitment of school leaders is something that is laudable and something that we want. On the other hand, it might be interfering with our ability to create a culture of self-care. And that is going to be a requirement, particularly because of concerns about mental health, not only of students, but of teachers and of parents as well. So if school leaders have to work on all of that, that that's a heavy load, right? And, and they need to be considered. And, you know, there is some research or at least some professional articles that have been written about, you know, principles are the last to be considered when we think about comprehensive school health or well-being. And there's a bit of a reaction to that with more research coming about. But that's one thing. I think on a practical level, we have to examine some of the structural <clears throat> impediments that 
are making it difficult for school leaders to address all that's required of them. Excuse me. Um, And I'm not just talking about funding. There are things in the structure of the role. So the principal is expected to be the instructional leader. And I know we think about that in a positive way. If you look to the literature, though, it's a top-down approach. It is up to the school leader to be accountable, up to the principal to be accountable. That's something I heard over and over. The buck stops here. I'm it, right? I'm the one pulling things together while everybody gets to go home and do whatever, right? In the crisis moments, like the pandemic, it's the principal who's at the meetings, right? And so there's something interesting about that with respect to the vice principal or assistant principal role. That's also an interesting area where the moral distress looks different. And I think that with the vice principal and assistant principal role not having a legislated definition or job description, if you will, they can be put in um, untenable situations with their leadership team. So that's something to think about, too. We, we, we want to shift things in terms of how leadership looks And there's a lot of lovely adjectives that we put in front of the term leadership, like transformational, distributed, shared. And while that's well and good, unless you do something about the structure, not much can change. It's just like collaboration with teachers. If you want teachers to collaborate, you have to give them time. That's a structural um, element, right? They, they won't find it on their own because they're already taxed to the limit, right? So some of these challenges that are confronting school leaders require a structural response. I don't know what that looks like. This is where I think there's some exciting possibility if we look to a field like design studies, where they actually do examine things like this, Um but I don't know what the answer is on that. But I, I do see that that's, there are strong implications for doing that. And, you know, we're in a moment where there's so much uncertainty and unknown and unpredictability. But there will be shifts. There will be a lot to examine of how the current pandemic is changing the way we work. I mean, we aren't sitting in the same room doing this podcast, right? We're all in our own spaces in self-isolation, right? And I think there will be a lot of people examining the social impacts, the cultural, the work culture, and how that's impacted. And maybe there's something promising coming from that. I don't know. I I hope there is. I I agree. I think that there. I hope there is. I don't know if there is, but uh, I will. I will. I will keep on the side of positivity. Now. Um, I'm interested in what's next. I know you've talked about some um, distribution of this information, the the information from the study, and and uh, you've also heard from you that there was some follow up uh, around women in leadership. Um, I've also heard uh, that you know this introduction of of a new concept to the field of education that seems pretty promising. You know, what are you seeing as, as kind of next steps for, for this work and for this, this information? 
So one of the things that we've done, um, Corey, is is uh, Bonnie and I are actually uh, involved in another study on the standards, professional practice standards. And so this study informed that work as well. Some of the questions that we asked, some of the directions. So without question, studies build on, you know, the findings build on research as we go forward. But I do think that there's a couple of really key things. The first is we have to be really truthful. Um, to ourselves and and you know the powers within education systems around what these findings say we we can't just say oh we did a study and we're moving on we actually have to be mindful and sit with these findings for a little bit and say how did we get here and why do we see what we see unfolding in the alberta population of school leaders um, why is this happening and what what can we do about it instead of just saying you know, it's a it's a report there, but what are we going to do to help move forward with this work? Um, and collectively, right? Not just the profession, but school boards, uh, the College of Alberta school superintendents, parents, you know, people who support school leaders. There really has to be a larger conversation about these findings. So I, w- I would like to see as a next step, creating an infographic with kind of one page highlights of these findings that we can uh, distribute into a much broader public. Um, and that's that's one step we're taking. And I think, you know, we're in a really um, historical moment with, we've mentioned the pandemic several times, right? Because it's unfolding as we're doing this podcast. I think we're going to need all of the leadership across our society that um, uh, we, can, we can find. And um, that means not just in the healthcare field, but also in the education sector, because really navigating the uncertainty, navigating the changes, both social economic, that we that you know will inevitably come out of this um, uh, crisis, um, will be really important across society. And anybody who holds a trusted position in society, uh, teachers um, and school leaders being among them. Uh, the most trusted in society, we're really going to look at, okay, what do we know about the context of school leadership and how can we support them as we really kind of weave back together um, our society coming out of this pandemic? Because it's uncertain how long this will uh, unfold and what the implications will be of it. Bonnie, anything to add? No, Phil talked about the need for a collective effort as a response, and I, I agree with that. Um, it reminded me of an article I read not too long ago, a philosopher named Norfolk, who was responding to a criticism of complaining, which sounds like an odd topic for a philosophy journal. But nonetheless, it was really interesting because her argument was that instead of thinking about complaining as just a negative attitude, she argued that there is an affective duty to do it because people who are in a situation that prompts them to complain are dealing with something that's difficult. And these school leaders are dealing with something that's difficult. I think that some of those people who participated in focus groups felt a collective support just being able to talk about these things in a safe space. And so that affective duty to talk about these things 
really can address things like isolation. And so lots of them talked about things that they need that they thought the association might be able to provide that were related to creating networks. They might already have networks or collaborative groups working in their school division, but they wanted to be able to talk to someone who really understood their role because they might not have anybody in the district who does the same thing as them. They might be uh, working in a virtual school. They might be the principal of multiple sites. And so they have no one to talk to. So I think that is, there are implications for how we set up the profession in a provincial sense, not just in our school jurisdictions. That's um, certainly one thing. From a university perspective, I've already put this into practice. So I finished writing the report in June and I knew I was teaching a course in July. It was one of the courses that leads to certification for people in the LQS. I actually changed the text that they were reading and included uh, a presentation of this study and some of the readings that would address this very phenomenon. So I had them reading um, Teacher Wellbeing by Tchaikovsky and Walker that is about teacher flourishing. And I included speakers. So this was a summer school, which is kind of an alternative format with lots of speakers. I had speakers coming in to talk about mental health. I had speakers coming in to talk about hope. Um, I had speakers that were talking about um, uh, just some specific mental health um, disorders, I guess. So I, I organized the whole course around that. And this is one of the interesting conclusions that I drew. And I was thinking about this before um, we came on into this podcast. What I learned from this study, it, it kind of was all shocking to me or surprising. And that was one of your first questions, Corey. I am someone who does empirical research. I go into schools, but my signature research area is parents. And Corey, you've talked to me about that in another podcast. And I thought I knew what was going on, but really I don't. And that's because principals are not gonna empty out everything that's going on, even if I interview them about parents. And I've never even heard the kinds of things that are creating constraint for them with respect to parents that I heard in this study. And so it really spoke to me about the criticality of academics being grounded in the profession. Education is a professional discipline. We don't do applied research. It's theoretical, it's conceptual. I definitely understand the need for that. But unless you know what's really happening on the ground, then there's going to be a disconnect. And I'm convinced now that that's why there's sometimes a complaint about graduate studies. It's a theory practice divide. I do not believe that. And I cringe every time people talk about it. There shouldn't be. But maybe it's because we don't necessarily have a good connection. And I don't want to disparage anyone who researches something that doesn't bring them physically into a school. I don't think it's necessarily about that because I'm in schools. I mean, maybe we also need networks that engage academics and the profession together. We don't do that very often. Teachers have their convention. Maybe some academics have some research to present that's relevant, but most likely not. Academics have their own conferences 
and maybe one or two people who might have a doctorate might wander in, but we don't have a space that combines that. And I think we really need that. Well said. Well said. I, I agree. And Corey, I also, if I can, I also want to acknowledge your leadership um, to bring people together, to not only bring academics and thought leaders, um, um, but, you know, your ability to really try and bridge those practice policy uh, research divides with your podcast and in your daily work as a school leader to, uh, you know, ask the questions about making it really practical. So I want to acknowledge your leadership and also given that you're one of the uh, thousand uh, uh, school leaders in the province uh, on a daily basis that is, uh, you know, in a, in a school and caring for others. Um, you know, I want to thank you because it is work that has a really profound impact on people's lives and needs to be celebrated and acknowledged. So um, thank you to you as well. Well, thanks a lot, Phil. That's uh, and I think that I take that as not only a, a thank you personally, but uh, I hope that all of the school leaders who are listening take that as a personal thank you as well. Um, speaking of uh, thank yous, uh, thank you so much, Bonnie and Phil, for sharing a little bit of your time. Thank you for this study that I found personally. Uh, just I, I saw myself in it, which is which I think is probably. Um, as good of a compliment as you can give any academic research talking about uh, principles in schools is that when you can actually see yourself and your uh, opinion and your lived experience reflected in the findings, that's that's the top of the iceberg right there. So thank you very much. And, and again, thank you for your time and sharing that. Always a pleasure, Corey. You bet. Thanks so much, Corey. <laughs>